0: In Isaiah 41, we saw God make a promise. He promised that the offspring of Abraham, the true people of God, would be made to be a threshing sledge that would shatter any obstacle that would come in its way and shatter the enemies that stood against them. God is going to take a people that are broken by sin and bless them and reverse their fortunes. And Isaiah 41 ends with the question, can your idols do that? Can your idols that you are putting your hope and your trust in accomplish what God is able to accomplish? It is God who rules over the earth. It is God who is sovereign. It is God who has the power to change lives and that those who will trust in the Lord have nothing to fear for God is with them. God is their help. God is upholding them, that God is strengthening them. And so you can imagine with the scene of Isaiah, if you can kind of back out and think about what Isaiah has been prophesying, God has said, you're all going to Babylon. You're going into captivity for your sins, but there is going to be a day that's going to arise. A new people will rise up. My offspring, my chosen ones. And you will serve me and I will make you this threshing sledge. And the question would be, how? How? How is that going to happen? How is God going to accomplish this for His people to be able to reverse their fortunes and to be able to set them as blessed people of God and to override these great obstacles where they are steeped in their sins? How is God going to accomplish all of that? And that is what Isaiah 42 says now goes on to address. We'll look at the first four verses tonight. We'll go all the way to 17 this evening, but we'll start with the first four verses as he now describes for us the work of this coming servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, for his law first picture given to us is that God says here's what I'm going to do here is how this reversal is going to happen I am going to send my servant a servant that belongs to God and a picture that he is not going to fail because he is upheld by God in verse 1 and so he's not going to fail in the mission that is going to be given to him and not only is he not going to fail he is quite a unique individual. This servant, we are told in verse 1, it says that God delights in him. The Lord delights in this servant. And that is a staggering statement that God finds pleasure in this one who is going to come. And that contrast, what we've seen as Israel being described as a servant God did not take pleasure in Israel. Israel has failed in its obligation. Israel has failed in its duty of being a light to to the nations and teaching the world and showing the glory of God. They have failed in that. And here God says, I've got another servant on the horizon. I have another servant who's going to come and he will not fail for I uphold him. And he will do it well such that God says, I delight in him. Which as an aside to kind of tie into this morning, if the, God the Father takes delight in the Son, then what should we do? If God finds His joy and His delight in the work and the activity of the Son, then most certainly we must look at Christ and find our joy and our delight in Him as well. Notice what He's going to do as well. Verse 1, I have put My Spirit upon Him. This is a a powerful statement about what is going to happen. When we go through the Old Testament, you will notice that the Spirit will come upon various individuals, and it would be to be either anointed like as king... Or you would be anointed as a prophet. The Spirit would be put upon them. And what this represented is that they were acting for and speaking as the authority of God. Particularly as the prophets you would see that. And so authority is being vested to him. And this is what God is saying. My servant he's going to complete the mission. He will not fail. And he's going to do it in a way that I desire such that my delight is in him. And not only that, he speaks and acts with my authority, my Spirit rests upon Him. And here's what He will accomplish at the end of verse 1. It says that He will bring forth justice to the nations. He is going to accomplish an amazing task. He will bring justice to the world. He will bring justice to the people. But the way that He is going to bring that justice is absolutely surprising. Because notice it in verse 2. He will not cry aloud. Or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He is going to bring justice to the world in a way that nobody ever has. Even in our time, we see this. We especially can think about it in the first century under the Roman Empire or in the days of Isaiah under the Assyrian Empire. How does a nation bring forth justice? Well, you bring forth justice by going in and wiping out your enemies. You go in and you destroy. You are aggressive and you throttle all of your enemies. And here's a picture of it's not going to go like that. This servant's not going to come in and just slice the nations in two and destroy every single physical nation and establish some kind of physical realm. Notice also what's going to make him different is he's not a self-promoter. Every ruler, every leader, every king draws attention to themselves. Hey, we're the ones in charge and we've come to liberate you and we've come to save you. We're going to be your deliverer. We're going to make everything so much better. And notice in verse three, he says he doesn't cry aloud. He doesn't promote himself. He's not about promoting who he is or launching some kind of propaganda campaign when he comes. He's going to be so different than all the other earthly leaders that have ever risen before him or that would ever rise after him. He will not act in selfishness nor act in a way to elevate himself, which is what all earthly leaders do. And so it really sets up a picture of how different this servant ruler is going to be, especially when you consider verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. As in their day and even true in our day, kings often cared more about the accomplishment of the task. And minimally cared about who got hurt in the process of accomplishing the task. The Romans wanted a road, a road it shall be and it doesn't really matter who gets hurt along the way. Rulers today still do the same thing. Policies are going to be enacted. Laws are going to be given. And the accomplishment of the law is more important than what happens along the way. Notice that's not going to be the case with this one. He says a bruised reed. He won't break that. Faintly burning wick. He's not going to quench that. What he is going to do is he will not come in as a ruling servant and destroy other people and harm the broken and hurt the downtrodden and just crush the oppressed. Instead, he's going to help the broken. And what's amazing about that is this is what Matthew quotes. Over in Matthew chapter 12, he quotes this very section. As Jesus is going through the cities and he is healing people of their diseases and of their infirmities, this is quoted. The compassion of Jesus to come and to see people, even though he is God and even though he is the ruler and even though he is appointed by God to a task. He does not come into the spiritually hurt, the spiritually broken, the oppressed and devastated and break them. Instead, he comes to help. Instead, he brings comfort. And I want to just make that an aside for just a moment for our consideration That as we grow in our spiritual maturity, as we grow in faith, that there is a responsibility on our part to mimic what we see in Christ. That as we look to other people in our own congregation or other Christians who are spiritually weak, spiritually in need, spiritually suffering, that we don't break that reed that we bring comfort, that we bring help, that we bring the spiritual encouragement that those people need. It is so easy to look at people and go, well, what is wrong with them? I mean, just get with it. Get on board with God already. Why are you being this way? You know what God's Word says. Come on, get with it. And sometimes it can be frustrating in trying to do, as Galatians tells us, to carry the burdens of the weak. But that's exactly what we see Jesus doing and we see God prophesy that that's the way his servant would be is that he would come to the spiritually weak. He would look to those who had spiritual needs and not break those people and not harm those people. But help them, encourage them, give them the strength that we, that they needed. So it's a beautiful picture of what he comes to do. This tender love and compassion. The servant will come and he will bring forth justice. You have to love verse 4 that drives it home again. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He is going to accomplish this mission. This task is not going to fail. He's not going to give out halfway through. He is definitely going to bring these things about. No obstacle is going to stop him. He will be able to powerfully utter the words. It's finished. There is no way he will be stopped until his plan and his job that has been given to him by God is accomplished. And the world... Waits in hope for that Notice it in the end of verse 4 The coastlands So that's the out, even the outskirts All the outskirts of the earth Look what they're waiting for The coming of the servant to bring his law They wait for him to come And so bring the servant. We desire the servant is the prophecy and he is going to come and he is going to accomplish the task of God in bringing justice to the nations and he will not do it forcefully or oppressively but through comfort and kindness and compassion he is going to help those who are spiritually downtrodden and oppressed and the world waits for him to come is how the first four verses begin. Now, watch how this shifts in verse 5 to the call of the servant of what God says about what he is going to do. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. And new things I now declare, behold, they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here's the call. You have to love how verse 5 goes with this. Here's God, and He says, now, it's not just God says. God who created the heavens, who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and all that comes on it. God who created humanity and puts life and breath in them. It's a picture of the all-powerful, almighty God. When His Word speaks, things happen. Life is accomplished. The very words of God, the universe comes into existence. The very words of God, life comes into man. It is this God who now speaks and He says here in verse 6 that this servant that He is called... He is going to come and keep all of God's righteous purposes. Essentially, what the servant does is what God wants him to do. He is not going to deviate from the purpose of God. You are not going to read about this servant and step back and go, now, is that really what God wanted? He's not going to be like a Balaam prophet where you read about him and go, now, I'm not sure that's what God wanted right there. That's kind of off the mark. He's not going to be like a David where you're going to say, well, that was... Wasn't what God wanted. He's going to live and act according to God's righteous purposes. An amazing declaration and setting apart of the servant. He will be like none other as he accomplishes all of the plans of God. Notice the first thing that he's going to do in verse 6 he says to the servant, I give you as a covenant for the people. You are going to be a covenant for the people. What a picture that is given to us that it would be this servant and through this servant that people would enter into a covenant relationship with God. I make you the covenant for all the nations through you. People will come into covenant relationship with God. This servant will change everything. He will be the mediator of the covenant. And through him, all the world, not just Israel, but all the world would now have access to God. Such that it says a great picture here where he says in verse six, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This light would not be exclusive to Israel, but the light would shine all the way out to all the nations, the ways of God, the information of God. Everybody will know about what God desires through this servant. And the way that this is described really sets up a picture of who we are. If the servant is described as a light to the nations, then where are all the people? They're all in deep darkness. In fact, notice the language in verse 7. Number one, to open the eyes that are blind. Number one, we're blind. Number two, verse 7, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. You ever see your spirituality that way? Our sins have put us in the dungeon. He says, I've come to bring them out. They're enslaved and trapped in their sins. They're chained and shackled in their sins. The servant has come to set them free. Verse 7, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So the picture of we are blind, we're enslaved in a dungeon, and we're in darkness to see where we stand. we as individuals, we want to sit back and say, we're smart, we're enlightened, we know, we've got it all figured out, we're A-OK. You know, we've got great human plans of how we're going to solve all the world's ills and problems. We've got it all figured out. And God says, you're in a dungeon. Uh, You're blind and you can't see a thing because you're in the dark. To recognize the human condition. The servant has come to bring light to the nations. To be able to deliver the people from their sins. It is a massive task. A worldwide task that the servant is given. That he is going to deliver people From their own idolatry and sinfulness to which they have enslaved themselves. This has been the message of Isaiah. You have not trusted in God. We saw that way back in chapter 7, 8, 9, 5, chapter 5. It's all over the place from the very beginning. You're not trusting God. You're trusting the nations as your idols. You're trusting in one another as we saw in chapter 41. You're trusting in your government. You're trusting in your leaders. You're trusting in your material possessions, Isaiah 41 said. And God says, here's what I'm going to do about that. I'm going to send a servant who's going to set you Free from the idolatry to which you enslaved yourself. You made the mess, I will come in and clean it up with my servant. Shocking. Shocking. I don't like coming in and cleaning up For the mess of my kids. I'll say, you made the mess, you're going to deal with your mess. I'm not messing with your mess. God says. You're blind, you're darkness, you're a slave because of your sins. You haven't put your trust in me, you're full of idols. And so I'll send my servant and he will be the covenant between you and me and will shine a light into the darkness so that you can come to me to set you free from the sins to which you have enslaved yourself, which leads to the glory that God desires. Verse 8. I am the Lord That is my name. My glory I give to no other. This action is to cause the world to glorify God. For us to be set free is to cause us to look to God and say, look at what He has done. How can we possibly glorify and honor anything else? Why would we honor the idols and trust in the idols when those are the very things that got us in this mess in the first place? These are the very things that enslaved us and separated us from God. God says, I will come and deliver you. I am sending a servant to save you and I should get glory for that. And not the idols, as the rest of verse 8 goes on to say. The praise should not be to anyone else to anything else but to God alone. He deserves our glory. He deserves our praise. And yet so often what we do is we look at the glory of Christ and we see our salvation and turn right back to the idols. And one abomination that must be before the eyes of God. He says, you're a mess. I clean you up. I pick you up and I'm trying to preserve you. You go right back into those very things. And God says, I'm telling you these things in advance. I love verse 9. The former things have come to pass. Here God says, everything that I prophesied before has already happened. You can imagine when they came to the scroll of Isaiah in captivity and they've read the first 39 chapters. There's no chapters back then. What else are you going to call them? They read the first half of the book. And they go, that's exactly what God said was going to happen. He said Assyria was going to come in, but then Jerusalem was going to be okay, but because of Hezekiah Babylon would take us away. And here we are sitting in captivity. And now God says, there's going to be a servant who's going to deliver us. Who's going to set us free because we've been in enslaved, and and captured by our sins. He will set us free from all of that. And God says, that's why you can trust it will happen. Because the former things I've said have come to pass now the new things I declare before they spring forth I'm telling you what will happen in the future I will deliver you so how can we go back I couldn't help but think of the proverb as well as what Peter quotes as well that's one of the most graphic disgusting passages in the Bible right Proverbs 26, 11, is the dog returns to its own vomit, such as the fool. And Peter uses that and speaks of the disaster that befalls a Christian who would turn back from God and go back into the, the filth as a dog does to the vomit or as the pig goes back to the, the mud and the slob. How can we do it? And that's what God is asking in this scene. Back at the end of chapter 41, he said, your idols can't do what I'm about to do. Everything that you're putting your hope and your trust in doesn't do what you think it's going to do. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But God presses forward in verses 10 through 17 now, and he says, now here's what I'm going to do. So he says, first, I want you to hear the call of my servant. Here's what my servant will do and what I have called him to accomplish it. He will accomplish it. He will fulfill it. He will not come up short in any way. My righteous purposes will be accomplished through him such that my delight is in him. And he will set people free and he will be a covenant to the people. And he will shine the light of the glory of God so that the world can be set free and come to him. And so verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. But now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods verse 10 look at what God is doing and now God tells all the earth the coastlands the sea that all that is on the earth sing a new song a new song you will find that a few times in the scriptures And it's always a picture of victory tied to God accomplishing a new work. And He displays His victory in the new work that He is accomplishing. And so God says, I'm going to do something new and I will be victorious in it. And that deserves your praise. That deserves you to sing as He's spoken of the justice that He is going to give and the grace that He's going to bring and the glory that's going to be extended. This servant will be victorious setting people free from the dungeon of darkness opening the eyes of the people to see the light and the people are now to praise him for that for this great work that God has accomplished through his servant and look at something I think really interesting in verses 13 and 14 how God describes himself and what he's doing verse 13 he says The Lord goes out like a mighty warrior. And you've got to go, whoa. When the Lord goes out as a mighty warrior, He's going to win. He's going to destroy the enemies, all the obstacles that stand against Him. But notice how it is pictured. He pictures it as, now I'm going to act as a mighty warrior. Verse 14 says, for a long time, There was just silence. Nothing was going on. I held my peace. I restrained myself. But there is going to be a time when that silence will end. And I will act as a mighty warrior. And I will rise up. And I will deal with the enemies. I do think that this pictures what would happen after the time of captivity that God is going to go silent before His people. But Isaiah said, after the silence, I'm going to act. There's going to be a time of silence. After the people come back from their captivity, God sends a handful of prophets to them, which they in turn reject. And God goes silent on the people, waiting for the arrival of His saving servant to come. And when the saving servant comes, God is now acting. God is now bringing justice to the world. Now he will not wait any longer. Now God is going to act. And you have to love the imagery that's used here. Verse 15, I lay waste to mountains and hills and dry up the vegetation. Here he is, destroying the enemies, destroying the obstacles. He's going to deal with sins. He's going to deal with the enemies of God's people. But then did you see the change that happens in verse 16? Is that God says, I'm going through destroying and I'm dealing with the enemies and I'm wiping them out. And the destroyer now becomes the rescuer. Verse 16, it's like this massive ship. Look, verse 15, He's destroying. I will turn the rivers into islands. I will lay ways. verse 16, and I lead the blind. Here's the good tidings. And here's what else I'm going to do. A massive reversal is going to happen, that God is going to lead the blind, and He's going to lead them in a way that they do not know. Here is a picture of God saying, there's going to be a whole new way to the Lord. And the picture of the covenant through the servant gives us the clue. The covenant that's going to be made and the way to come to God is not going to be the way that it was before. That God will come and lead the blind, but it's going to be in a different path. They're going to go a different way. It's not going to be like that old covenant. It's not going to be like that old system. When my servant comes and establishes this covenant, it's going to be a new way, a new system. Uh, new things are going to arise. And this is what pictures, what God pictures is going to happen. And so not only is the servant bringing a covenant, he shows the new path as the light of the world to the Father. God will remove all obstacles that stand between us and God. How did you see in verse 16? I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. Why? Verse 16, these are things I do, and I do not forsake them. He said that back in chapter 41. Those who are the offspring of Abraham, those who are his chosen people, he says, I am with them. I do not forsake them. I help them. I uphold them. And here is the picture that it is going to happen. A beautiful picture of what God is going to accomplish. I'd like to sum it up this way is what we're being told is that God declares that His great work is to take compulsive idolaters like us and turn them into glad worshipers of Him alone? This is the glorious work that is going to be accomplished. How is God going to do that? How is He going to take people who keep running back into sin and keep trusting in their idols and fail to give God the glory? The servant is the decisive moment in history. That should change everything. That will cause people to turn their hearts to God. That will cause people to glorify God. That will cause people to honor Him for all that He has done. Christ coming to the earth and the sacrifice and resurrection of His life. Now becomes that critical moment. That just to cause all the earth to change their ways and to glorify God and follow him because of verse 17 he says if you don't change you will experience utter shame that god has given every opportunity and every possibility to put the idols away and to turn to him in joyful worship and our refusal to do so he says there will be consequences we will be utterly put to shame one day. Not only on Judgment Day, but friends, when we trust in idols today, those things don't hold up, and we're put to shame even now. You put in your hope in all your money. How's that looking right now? You put in your hope in some material possession, How does that look in a few years? Yeah, it looks shiny now. Give it a little while. We put our hope in all of these things that are temporary and will pass away. And it is shameful of us to do it. And we look foolish when we do it. The world around us looks foolish in putting their hope in these things. And often we do the exact same thing. And he says, there's a grave warning here. Put your trust in God alone. And so I just want to end with one question, one thought. Why do we keep trusting in idols? As I got to the end of this section, I thought, so what's my problem? (laughs) I know what I ought to be doing. I can step back and make the calculation. Yes, worshiping God and trusting God is the obvious choice. It is the way that I ought to go. So why do I continue to trust in idols? Why do we do it? Why, when we know full well the right way to go and we know the worthiness of trusting in God, do we continue to put our hope in this world, hope in people in this earth, hope in the things of this earth? I think there's one answer. This is my answer for me. Is that what happens is our idols promise a more immediate satisfaction than what we seem to think we're receiving from the invisible God. The reason I run to the things of this world and I run to sin and I run to material possessions and I run to other people as my hope and trust and deliverance and comfort is because I believe there will be a more immediate satisfaction from that than trusting in God. And what we are failing to see is that we are making a tragic decision. A tragic decision, a foolish decision where we are exchanging eternal things for temporary things. That we are exchanging eternal joy and lasting joy and true joy for things that we think are going to give us joy now. And I wanted to. Almost really ratcheted up a little bit Because as I thought about it It's actually not even a now or later consideration It's not just simply Well I'd rather have my pleasure now Than in the future That's part of it But what I want us to see is Not only is it forfeiting joy True joy in eternity In the future You're forfeiting it now. Because everything that we put our trust in and engage in doesn't ever satisfy. There is temporary happiness. I'll give it that word. There is a time of happiness, momentary disposition of feeling good that quickly slips away. And we've exchanged that moment, those minutes, that hour of temporary happiness. For instead of not only lasting joy with God in eternity, but that there is joy and life now, if we would seek it. What I'm getting at is we need to train ourselves to recognize that we're not only forfeiting future joy, we're forfeiting current joy. That you you and I recognize that we don't find lasting joy in the sins that we're committing and the things that we entrust our lives. We don't find it. It is a temporary happiness that then quickly shades to guilt, consequences, pain, breakdown, Suffering, difficulty, the consequences of our behaviors and our actions now come raining upon us when we could have had joy and satisfaction now as well as in the time to come. I want to impress upon us that the joy of obedience to God is much greater. Than the sin that we think is going to give us so much joy. We think, this is going to make me happy. This is going to give me what I need. And we engage in it and it fails. It's temporary. It's fleeting. And Satan comes in and says to you, you didn't do it right. Try it again. Go bigger. Go more. And there is a law of diminishing returns with sin. We've all experienced. That you have to go further and deeper and bigger. To try to find this satisfaction that doesn't exist. And God is coming to his people and saying. Don't do that. I have sent my servant to set you free. To give you light. So that you can have joy now. And enjoy your life now. And enjoy life to come. But you have to walk away from these idols. That Jesus is the way God will radically transform our lives. May we be able to adopt words that David said. Oh, how I love your law. To have a desire, a zeal, an interest. A love for the things of God. It is possible. And it is what we need to conform our lives to. The Lord delighted in Jesus. We must find our delight in Jesus and recognize the exchange we're making is a foolish exchange. And it is not delivering the immediate satisfaction that you and I think it's giving us. How many times when you have, by the power of God, overcome a temptation? Temptation comes your way, and you do the right thing. God, in that strength, you go away from that sin. You flee that. Is there not great joy in that? And that is a great moment. That is a satisfying moment. To walk away from something that you know is hurtful, damaging, sinful. And to do what God says, it's just a small taste of the joy that can be experienced in this life. That can't be taken away from us no matter what happens in our circumstances. No matter what we lose of family and wealth and things. No matter what our external situation is. That there is a joy right there that is never taken away. That obedience to Jesus is a joy beyond compare. Seek it. You've experienced it. Dwell in it and keep doing it. Because the joy of sin is a facade. Pull your books out. We'll sing invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus, to turn away from idols, turn away from sin, turn away from self pleasing and turn to the desire of God by turning to Jesus Christ, the one who has come to set us free. There is no more glorious picture than to know that for all of our sins, that we have enslaved ourselves, that we have damaged ourselves, that we have wrecked ourselves by sin, that God says, I will heal you of that, and I'll set you free, and I'll shine a light in the world that you can know the way to God, And you can belong to my covenant people through Jesus. What a glorious God we serve. Won't you come to Him tonight? Turn away from your sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And follow in joy in serving Him. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?